Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Ever dance with the devil in the pale moonlight? I always ask out of all my prayer. I just like the sound of it. Podcast like it's 1989. Podcast like it. Just podcast like it. Podcast like it's 1989. Podcast like it. Just podcast like it. Podcast like it's 1989. Baby fish mouth. Baby fish mouth. Hello and welcome to Podcast Like It's 1989, the Patreon, where we talk about the films of 1989 from the Upper West Side here in 2021. I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Nybart. And I'm Phil Iscove. And with us today to talk about Ghostbusters 2 is Hunter Covington. He's been on the show before. Um, he's on Google and IMDb. Uh, Hunter. He's also uh, he's also writing a project with me now. So that's congratulations, guys. Phil just told me you guys. Uh, I I don't want to say anything out of school. Yeah, no, we're not going to get into the specifics of it, but we're 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 working for Mickey I'm, Mouse now. I'm so very that's I'm, which could be in one of a million things these days. Yep. Yep. Um, is it a Hulu project? Is it FX? Who knows? But know. I'm very proud of you guys uh, for selling that show, <laughs> and it's really really great to have you on, Hunter. Um, well, always you're, one of our favorite guests. You're so our, sweet, Kenny. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate. And it. I've missed you because I've been dealing with Phil a lot. So I did. I do not miss <laughs> Phil. Yeah, he texted me Kenny. yesterday and was like, "Is Kenny going to be there, or is it just going to be us?" And I was like, "Kenny's like awesome. He was definitely much more excited <laughs> since you were going to be." Well, there. no, I because th- I thought, and then I read some of your Twitter last night, which I shouldn't have mm-hmm. done. But I thought if it was just me and Phil, that me and Phil would be fighting the entire time about this movie, and. Yeah. Which we're not going to be, which is exciting. Um, but anyway, I just don't have time for the negativity in 2020. No, I mean, I, fair enough. 
That's what this movie's about. That's exactly. a, like, like straight up. This this movie is a very bald call to call to arms for niceness, right? It's, it's also it's be good. Yeah, it, it's it, it's it's sort of like that. Uh, if you could uh, do one thing, if you could say one thing to the world, and everyone would hear you, it's like I would just make them watch Ghostbusters too right now. Like, let's get rid of all the fucking. I agree with you. Let's get rid of all all the Trump Trump train bullshit. All the all the hatred from all angles, and uh, let's try to do something constructive. Yeah, let's just let's get Joe Biden inside the Statue of Liberty and just have him do like a tour, just walk oh, across the country. That'd be dope. That actually, I think that would work. That's a, that's something people can get behind. All right, so the th- all right, couple things. Ghostbusters yeah. two. Uh, my history is go with Ghostbusters two real fast. Saw it in the theater. Uh, when I was seven years old, saw it before I ever saw Ghostbusters 1, have seen this movie at least 20 times more than I've seen Ghostbusters 1. I know every line of this movie. Uh, I, it, has, it has something that I have stolen so many times, which is I am in love with the scene early on when Vankman and, and Winston go to the birthday party and they're forgotten. I think it's one of the great sequel introductions uh and uh and and i think and I, I think it's basically as good as it gets now i i don't quite feel the way i think hunter feels which is i don't actually feel like it's a better movie than the first one. um and i know that's a weird thing to say on this podcast i i i think the first one is so funny and so perfect and such a such a pleasure and joy at every moment, whereas I do think this one is a little more uh, sweaty, I guess is the word I would use. But um, I do. I, I love it. I, that's not to say that I don't love this movie. I absolutely love this movie. It will be reflected in my rating at the end. But I, I do. Well, can I? I, think can a, I, I want to. I want to piggyback. There's a, case, there's a case to be made, and I've seen it made. Mm-hmm. That Ghostbusters is the best movie ever made. I've seen reputable reputable publications put that out there. All right, go ahead. I want to say one quick thing here uh, because it it kind of it it speaks to the previous episode that we did. The first episode of our Patreon was uh, Hunter was uh, uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade was the first one that we did. Love it, right? Which is a a, basically a a close, if not a perfect movie, very close to it. And we talked about the relationship that Last Crusade has to Raiders and which is better. There was discussions about you know that and i think there's an argument to be made for this versus the first ghostbusters as well right which is that this movie can't really exist without the first one and yet i think it does things better than the first one i don't know that if as a whole it's better but i think it does some stuff better than the first one okay i have okay so i actually talked with my friends uh in our star wars role-playing group last night um (laughs) which we could just gloss past that (laughs) um I think the agreed upon the majority of us agreed that the ranking of the Indiana Jones movies goes Temple of Doom, Last Crusade, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and then obviously the fourth one which is just a piece of shit. Well, you just you came on and dropped some bombs here. I don't well, know. How you I know feel the, the the thing I feel the thing I feel pretty strongly <laughs> is that three is better than one. Like the deep, and you know this, Phil. Like deep in my bones, I think 
I think one is kind of boring. That's and the I point. Think, yes. And I think three is fucking flawless. Now but two, two is really good. Two feels like a, two feels like a, your mileage may vary a little bit because that's that's not like exactly what I want out of my Indiana Joneses. But I understand if, if you love two, I get putting it above it. But three is just so much better than one. I agree. I have one third. Yeah. So yeah. I, I I have no real qualms with your list. But wait, what? Okay, just out of curiosity, and because I, obviously I haven't yeah. listened to the thing. What like what do you? Kenny's gone. Kenny just, Kenny just, left. Left. He just walked away. He just fucking walked away. Um, <laughs> just let my dog in. That's all. Uh, okay. So, so what is what happens in Temple of Doom that you don't like? Racism. <laughs> I mean, do you not like Breakfast at Tiffany's? I mean, I'm just asking. Yeah, I fucking hate it because of the race. Uh, Sixteen candles. Great. No, I'm just. I hear that. I definitely hear that. It's not to me. To me, it's not the racism, and I don't dislike the movie. I, I, uh, I, yeah, I mean, yeah. because the race. Sure, I mean, there. Yeah, like it's 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 bad, but uh, it's not the most interesting, you know, argument. Uh, I, I think there's a lack. I think there's a there's kind of a lack of emotion. I think it's a, and I feel that way about the first one too. So I feel like it's an adventure. It's just kind of by the numbers adventure. Well, I, can think I, both of, I think both of those are are. are you know, 1920s, 1930s, swashbuckling, you know, uh, hero goes on an adventure thing. I think the third one is about, you know, so much more and uh, really dissecting this character where he came from. I, I, All right, I'll, yeah. I'll put number, I'll put three up to the number one spot. Then. Well, can I, I I'll just, I, I do want to say that I watched two just recently, A Temple of Doom, I watched relatively recently. Um, shortly after we did our podcast on Last Crusade, I watched it again. And, and there is, I mean, the first, 20 to 30 minutes of that movie are absolutely insane fucking fantastic like it's just great it makes it makes no sense they're fucking coming out of planes and inflatable rafts like it's just it's bonkers and it's great and i would also say that the last like 15 minutes every like everything from the carts in the in the like the mining carts thing to the end of the movie are fantastic it's kind of the middle chunk where you're like we're eating monkey brains and we're we're making there's just stuff that you're just like i'm not totally sure that this is working all right which I, I, you. Which, but anyway. which I feel about the first one as well hunter the other movie we've done because it wasn't really a patreon we did Correct. we're gonna do it on the, on the main feed but it's a yeah. uh it's kind of an entree into the patreon was um christmas vacation and i was wondering if you had a vacation, sure. do you have a vacation yeah. rating rankings oh that's hard <laughs> yeah, I agree. It is hard, Hunter. I I'm going to go on a limb. I feel like the National Lampoon movies were a big part of your growing your adolescence. I- yeah, they they don't even feel they're they're kind of like ingrained in me in a way where like I couldn't really even tell you what happens in them or what the scenes are. But as soon as I start, yeah. there was this moment. So I watched um I watched Ghost I rewatched Ghostbusters two with uh, my wife. And my 13 year old son. And there was a moment where the Bobby Brown song comes on. That song is so good. And, and <laughs> Stacy's like, Oh, you remember this? And I was like, And I guess we're gonna have to. It's so good. I was like, I was like, Yeah. And then he, st- as soon as it started, I was just singing along. And I was like, Too hot to handle, too cold too to cold hold. Too cold to hold. I was just like, You're just like, Holy shit. And the same thing happened with me with um, uh, MC Hammer's Adam Adam's Family Groove. Sure, yeah, they do what they want and they say what they want and then 
Yeah. I like, I'm like, I'm like, I think I sort of remember that song. And I pull it up, and I'm just like fully. It's like a Manchurian yeah. candidate <laughs> situation. It's just like in me, and so I feel yeah. like the the vacation movies are a lot like that. I think European Vacation was like very out of uh, the norm for me from Indiana, so I really related to that one. Mm-hmm. Christmas Vacation was probably the most like my life. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. I agree well, that it was the most like your life. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Kenny. So I, I do – I mean I feel like this movie – and I, I guess I should give my – I guess my history with this movie, which is that it, it – I don't really have one. I saw it in the theater or around the time that it came out. I probably saw it a couple times around then. And then my allegiance has just always been to the first one. I, I have to be completely honest. I don't think I've seen this film in over 20 years. So I went into it with relatively fresh eyes. I knew that I, – I mean – I knew what happened in it and I certainly don't, I wasn't sort of surprised by anything necessarily on the story or the plot. And I would even say that an episode of Sleepy Hollow, we had a a, a monster come out of a painting, which was loosely based on this, uh, on this movie. So like I knew the general conceit of the film. Um, I was really blown away by it in a bunch of ways. There's some stuff that I have issues with and we'll talk about that stuff, but more than anything, I just couldn't get over how fucking good it looks. Like it looks fantastic. It's, it looks great. That's a, that's a big thing. It, it's yeah. weird just because I think the 84 version looks pretty shitty. And I think everything from about 1987, 88, uh, yep. b- before then, looks pretty horrible. We watched, I don't know if you've watched Splash anytime recently, but it looks like it was made in the fucking 40s. It's I mean, crazy. but I mean, if, even if you look at Star Wars Episode One, that looks yeah. like shit compared to oh, this movie. It looks movie, like shit. Which is unbelievable. It's 10, 10 years later. Old. All these yep. small advances in in advances or kind of styles in production design, in the lenses that you use, and the way scenes are lit, and the it, it, everything just looks so much better. And that is like that to me. That is like kind of a, quant, a quantum leap in its favor. It's an easier watch than the first one in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. It's also, I think, and I, I texted this to you, Kenny, as I was watching this film, but there, there is something very comforting. I mean, we've only done a handful of, of 89 films thus far, but and, and part of it, I'm sure, has to do with nostalgia. Part of it has to do with when we were watching these as, as kids or what have you. So like, there's an instantaneous kind of regression to what it feels like you know, back then. But also, they just they feel warmer, and it's because they're tactile. It all feels like you can actually touch this stuff. And as great as special effects are, and I know I'm the millionth person to say this, but like it still feels hollow. It still doesn't ring true. It's a little too slick. It's a little too, you know, you just know when you're looking at something computer generated as opposed to, like I think about the scene where uh, the slime in the bathtub which looks fucking awesome because they built this giant like slime creature that's actually like physically in the space with them. And I just, that's the type of shit that we just don't do anymore. That scene always stuck with me, genuinely terrified me as a child. Um, (laughs) But I I also want to point out that, that the scene in the courtroom is all CGI. It looks incredible. Slimer looks really good in this movie. They, they use CGI, at the right time, and they use practical effects. Like, you know, the Statue of Liberty is all a human being. It's a man. I remember distinctly watching behind the scenes of this. It's all a human being walking in a small uh, a small version of New York. That's all practical, and that looks really incredible. So, It looks yeah. so fucking good. 
I can't get over. I mean, I was watching it with Mal, uh, who was unenthused by this film from from credits to credits. Um, Is that true? We're absolutely true. That's uh, wild. I, I I think that, and we sort of talked about it a little bit. It's a little bit of a generational thing to a certain degree, which is that I think that sort of 80s comedies and just a lot of kind of that 80s vibe just kind of flies past her. And she just, for whatever reason, and that's not a judgment. She watched it and she was like, I I get why people like this, but it's just not my bag. I'm like, all right. Hunter, what did your son think? I mean, pretty much the same. I mean, he just (laughs) sort of sat there. Um, I mean, it's it's interesting. I think I, I think my history with the movie is just sort of is very similar, and I think the reason why I probably end up liking it more than the first one, even though it might not be as good of a movie technically, whatever that means. Um, I think it was one of those movies that was just on all the time, and right. I have a few of those which are like um, Overboard was on all the time. Uh, Big Trouble in Little China was on all the time. And that's like, that's something that people today are going to miss out on is like only being able to watch what was on. So this is just like one of those movies that was on all the time. It depresses the shit out of me, to be honest. But it's like, I fucking love it. It's so good. Um, And I think like just going back, jumping back, a thought I had earlier is sort of, we all like, like a hit song. Like we all like a hit song. It's great. But then yeah. when they do a remix of the hit song, you're like, oh, this is fucking choice. This is like, a, <laughs> this is well, how great. Or like, you know, when, uh, you know, even if you take Bob Dylan plays um, all along the watchtower, you're like, that's pretty, that's a fucking holy shit. And then you hear Hendrix's version. And you're like, oh, what the fuck was Bob Dylan doing? And that's. <laughs> That's sort of how I feel about this movie. It, like I feel like Kenny was hitting on it earlier about the the beginning. I think the beginning is so good. I think the fact that they embrace that it's five years later and kind of mm-hmm. like just rolled into it and it was all sort of organic and it wasn't weird. Mm-hmm. Um, I loved all that stuff. And then I also felt like they didn't try to be scary anymore. I feel like there are some moments in one where they're like, we're going to be for real scary. And it's like, well, it's not, we're already out of that. And so, Maybe some tone fluctuations a bit in that first one. I'll say well, it's 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 interesting that you say that because I was reading, I was doing some reading on this, and it, so I never saw the real Ghostbusters. Did you guys ever watch this yeah. animated show? Okay, so yeah. I, I never saw that, um, which apparently was a huge hit in '86 when it came out, and because of the success of that, Reitman, Aykroyd, Ramis kind of dial back on the toning down of innuendo behaviors the darkness of it is they try to quite frankly they try to make it more of a family-friendly movie you know you got a baby you got other kind of stuff like that in the film which which i think totally works but it does explain why to your point hunter it just it feels a little softer and it's not a bad thing necessarily because the first one isn't particularly scary like it's it that's not really what they're i don't know it's it's kind of like you know but they're they're you know it's interesting i've i've uh I showed my kids the first Ghostbusters very young. My kids are eight. I showed it. I showed it to them five, four, five, something like that. Uh-huh. Right. Um, and they were scared. Like that first scene in the library that is genuinely scary. It's scary. I mean, it's scary because of the old woman. It's scary because of the uh, the books flying out. Um, I think it's this a very weird kind of phenomenon that I cannot really wrap my head around. Are the movies that start 
uh, either R-rated or kind of, you know, a little harder and not for families explicitly. And as the sequels come out, they are more family-friendly. There's a bunch I can think of. I mean, Lethal Major Weapons, the one that comes to mind. Yeah, Lethal Weapon. Um, with I, I believe the third one was, P, was PG-13. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Major League went from a movie that was a hard R to a movie that was about, like, you know, silly mascots. Uh, Speed 1 was R. Speed 2 is PG-13. But, but I think... Wow. So, this is actually... so. We have to remember that this came out in a time where like sequels were like shameful. It's to do. not that cool. That's what I said. That's what I said to Phil and, yesterday. Not yeah. cool. And so because everyone says this was a huge flop and everything, it didn't do that much worse than the first one. It, it made did. a lot of money. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It, like yeah. it made a lot of money. So to pretend yeah. like this killed the franchise, it's like okay. No. But I think that because because sequels were such a shameful thing maybe that's why it's like this was an r the sequel needs to be a pg because we need to have access to that much more audience yeah because we don't believe we don't believe in it i think it's part of the first one's r but what i would say the first one is not r the first one's not r the first one is just it's just hard kind of harder edge but what i think it's it speaks to the point hunter was making which i think is the biggest difference between movies in 2020 and movies in you know the 80s and 90s far more so than um than even even streaming or distribution or anything like that it's the fact that movies are not replayed on cable uh in in edited forms so anybody can watch it so you know, uh, a major league, which was an eighty-nine movie, or the or or Ghostbusters, or any of these movies had these kid-friendly versions that people were able to watch over and over again and get comfortable with, and then it became part of their part of themselves, a part of their family, and all these things. Then, when the next movie came out, it only made sense that you'd want to put a movie in the theaters that that fit more the TBS version or the TNT version, or the USA version, or the network broadcast version. Because I used to do that too, and I really do bemoan that. Like the movie that that more than any movie that I feel like uh, would have had a different kind of life and a different trajectory was The Irishman. When I watched The Irishman on Netflix, the saddest thing to me was like, I'm probably never going to watch this movie again. The way I've seen Casino and Goodfellas like hundreds of times, because whenever they're on, I just watch them all the way to the end. And I know every line of that. I will never, ever sit down. And put in three and a half hours of the Irishman on purpose. Four. I mean, Four. I, I, I mean, I think that's indicative of the Irishman. <laughs> uh, less no, so. Uh, what I don't think movie, the Ir- what what Netflix movie? Well, what Netflix? No, no, no. Movie I'm, I'm, people- I, I'm I'm speaking to to the fact that the Irishman was not particularly enjoyable three hour oh, three hour i thought the irishman was amazing so i feel very different than you and i feel like the i feel like the irishman was built was 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 metered out in such a way that i could have come in once i had watched it once at almost any chapter and enjoyed it the way i enjoy the luthanza heist or enjoy it the way i enjoy the last third of casino or anything okay. like that which you know i just know every bit and piece of that i know it became what became before and after, but it is a Netflix problem and it is an Amazon problem. There are there is no uh, Netflix original movie for Roman of the Christmas Chronicles that I will ever play again. 
On well, I mean, I'm, I, I, I'm looking at my marriage story Blu-ray right now, and I'll guarantee you that I'll watch that again. But I hear you, and, and I understand. You're, you're a unique bird. <clears throat> I will never put in a Blu-ray. I will, never put in a Blu- I will never put in a Blu-ray again. That's another thing nuts, I will do. That's okay. But listen, this is all I, I hear all of that. And I and I do think that this film, unfortunately, I was watching it yesterday. And, and at one point, I literally thought, like, how did we not get two or three more of these? Like, it's crazy that it's I mean, it, it, it essentially seems that from what I'm so just to give a little bit of context for, for the people that perhaps, you know, Several factors contributed to the five-year gap between the original and the sequel. Bill Murray was on an extended sabbatical from acting and was angered by the, at the time, Columbia head of the studio, David Putman, calling him an actor who makes millions off movies but gives nothing back to his art at a British-American Chamber of Commerce luncheon. Uh, Putman also resented blockbuster movies, all that kind of shit. He was subsequently fired in the fall of 87. He was replaced by another studio head, Mike Ovitz, who repped uh, Murray, Ramis, and Reitman, brings all of them into CAA to have like a meeting to talk it out. Uh, and they were able to obviously work it out and figure it out. But ultimately, the fact that we don't have more of these movies, and then Bill Murray told Entertainment Weekly years later that he was disappointed in the way the film turned out. He thought the special effects guys took over. It was too much of the slime and not enough of us. I just think that Bill Murray, and you said this last night, Ken, and we were texting about it, that Bill Murray was just like, sequels are lame. I don't want to do any more of these. And that's basically why they didn't do any more of them. But it's a bummer because I think that this was a really rich franchise that they could have done a well, lot it's, of it, Hunter said it. Sequels were shameful. Yeah. And and particularly in the 90s, it became a, 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 an embarrassing thing to continue to do a sequel like that. So there's that. Also, the, the, the deal was that I believe the three guys and Reitman all had sign-off on yeah. anything that went forward from the cartoon, right. the theme park rides to anything that had Ghostbusters to, to toys, anything that, that had, that had Ghostbusters on it. So Murray really, you know, there were, there were, there were scripts, there were pitches, there were full things that Ackroyd did. Murray had, had signed off on all of it. They had signed off on, you know, the, the Paul Feig movie and the, and the Jace Redden movie. Um, so I think that that kind of power, I, I, I actually am not particularly upset that we didn't get more of these um, because it would have been unfortunate to, to get watered down versions of them. Um, it, particularly if Bill Murray wasn't in it or if his heart wasn't in it. So I think his heart was like barely in this one. So I hear you, but I also like look at something like fast and the furious where they can add people and sort of revitalize a franchise. And I know that's nowadays and it doesn't work exactly the same. But because I love Bill Murray, but he's super finicky, so he's you're never going to get exactly what you want from him. So, yeah, I mean, I I don't I, I could have used more of these movies. Do you love Fast and the Furious? No, not particularly. I'm just I'm just using that as an example of you know, Bill Murray could walk away, and you could end up with I'll just say Jim Carrey because I can't think of anybody else. But I mean, there's a version where somebody comes in and is just different. Well, and, the fun the, the the fun thing is the thing you were talking about with uh, with covers. Like, it would have been fun to get other people's versions of this, not Ivan Reitman, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, throughout the last twenty years, instead of you know Paul Feig and then Jason Reitman, um, and and that is more of a thing that happened with Fast and Furious to me, right? You got the, yeah. you know, the, I remember the guy, the guys' names, but Justin Lin version, the James Justin Lin version, yeah. the Gary Gray version. 
And if you, I do like those movies, and if you do, uh, if you do watch, and they are different in their own way, and they're they're, they're they have their own little you know kind of action spin on it. That would have been really cool. And, yeah, and James I mean, I, Bond's the same right. way. Sorry, mm-hmm. go ahead, Phil. No, I, I mean, I I think that ultimately, I agree with you guys in the sense that I I didn't I, I don't want Ghostbusters to turn into Lethal Weapon, for instance. Which is, I mean, those are there there are two Lethal Weapon movies that I just never watch ever. The first two are the first one's great. The second one, they're already sort of getting kind of whatever, and then they go to shit. So like, I don't, I didn't want to, I don't want to see that. Um, I wonder though if, to your point, Kenny, about sort of all of these generated ideas that they had that never came to fruition because of either Bill Murray saying no or whatever, made kind of vaulted this thing to a level of like we have to get a Ghostbusters thing to happen because of all these things, and then ultimately Sony is able to make the Paul Feig movie happen, which is obviously flawed, but is also not nearly as bad as everyone makes it out to be. Um, I mean, I, it's, it's, it doesn't necessarily feel like a Ghostbusters movie in a weird way, but like, I don't know. And I don't know what Jason Reitman's movie is going to be. I'm sure it's going to be its own animal in some weird way. I really, I really don't like the Paul Feig movie. And, and, it, I, I, and it's, it's, it's unfortunate it became some kind of it became some kind of litmus test as to whether or not you know you're okay with the idea of female ghostbusters um, right i'm okay with the idea of female ghostbusters i think that movie is garbage uh i think like like i think i i think it's i think it does does the exact opposite of what i want there's no character building there's no world building it's just jokes and it's jokes for the sake of jokes and it really kind of it, it's it's some of them are fine i mean kate mckinnon's always funny but it's not. Uh, it's not a lot of fun, and uh, I really I, I think didn't enjoy I, that experience. But. I don't get me wrong. I'm not. I'm not really writing for it. Um, I, I think that Kate McKinnon stole the movie. Um, I thought that the production itself was pretty impressive. I thought it was yeah, it well good. made. Yeah. Um, but to your point, you can't make a Ghostbusters movie like you make Bridesmaids, and it's really kind of shaggy and weird, and scenes go on mm-hmm. for too long, and it all kind of just feels very sort of. Um, it's just. It's just a weird not great movie but anyway um i'm gonna give a little uh, i'm gonna have a little synopsis for our uh, for our listeners who might not have seen ghostbusters 2 after saving new york city from a ghost attack the ghostbusters a team of spirit exterminators is disbanded for demolishing parts of the city during the battle but when ghostbuster peter venkman played by bill murray learns the spirits have taken an interest in his son uh, <laughs> A team, Kenny is already, a team of spirit exterminators. I didn't write this. <laughs> I know uh, you did. <laughs> the men launch a rogue ghost chasing mission. Uh, is it? Is the kid ever said to be his son? Just no, to be clear, I, I think this is one of those things where uh, they got too clever, and it's like okay. one of those. I worked on a show once where we always talked about writer's secret, where we do stuff in episodes, but we wouldn't uh-huh. kind of reveal these things. I'm sure it was going to turn out to be his son, but like down the road. And of course, I never thought he was his son. Am I crazy? Am I the dumbest? You're not crazy. You're not crazy, but I think that has to be on your mind a little bit. No, not at all. It's definitely, here's what it made me do. I don't know. I didn't want it to be his son. I, I did. I didn't really feel necessarily one way or the other, but I did. It, this this highlights something, Hunter. That I just let me very quickly finish. The the sure. quest goes awry, landing them in court. But when the ghosts turn on the judge, he issues an order allowing the ghost person to get back to work. But what I but what I to your point is this movie starts in a place of of Bill Murray and Sigourney Weaver's relationship being as it is, which is they kind of hook up, 
in the first one, but not really. Like their relationship is never really consummated within the the context of that film. And then here, he's like, That's my cool. Dana? And you're like, your Dana? <laughs> I don't really remember you guys ever fully, you know, getting together. So then to, it made me think like, did they get together in between movies and thus she had a kid with him? But then the dad is never really outed in this movie either. It's all very strange. And there's right. a baby. It's a major plot point that you're like, whose kid is this? I, I think that I read between the lines that they had some sort of thing, which fell apart. Then she was on a tilt. She got married to someone else who's right, some right, idiot. Right. And mm-hmm. then ends up having a kid with this guy. And then they get mm-hmm. divorced. And then sort of here she is because... But that's but that's I'm obviously making a ton of shit up that is not I, in the movie necessarily. I, I, I don't think, think so. I think you're filling think in the, the right stuff. Yeah, I think in the absence of you know actual plot points, go with the go with Occam's razor. And to me, that's yeah. just the yeah. Occam's razor of it. Yep. Um, gets you where you need to be, which is you obviously need a baby in this movie. Uh, yeah, but and, but and, I think but I think I appreciate the fact that we don't have to go. We didn't have to do any like the two of them being together and it not working out and totally. like watching, you know, six beats of that or whatever. It's just like, yeah, they're not going to get along. The, like why have them be together at all? Like we know I, that I, that I mean, wouldn't work. Well, and I would Peter, also, Peter Bank, sorry. No, it's, I would it's also, Peter Bankman. Yeah. That's, that's my, that's, that's my beginning and end. Like this guy, like it, it, if he were with Sigourney Weaver for the preceding five years, it would have been a different character moving forward. Yeah. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I mean, I, I think that what I love about the the relationship, if you want to call it that, of Peter and Dana uh, is how sort of oddly unconventional it is. Like they flirt with each other and they clearly like each other, but they're also just he's clearly too immature for a real relationship. She senses that about him, even if she is drawn to him. Nonetheless, there is sort of this like push and pull that exists between these, the two of them. And, and I like that. It's never fully, I like that. They just never really hook up. I don't know. I mean, maybe that's just me, but no, but I feel like it is really like a, um, I'm going to say the phrase work wife situation. Cause it seems like it's sort of that kind of platonic yeah. relationship yeah. or like, you know, what was hot at the time was like moonlighting where it's mm-hmm. like, these two people fucking hate each other, but are like drawn to each yeah. other. And yeah. Um, yeah. 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 I think, uh, I think they have, yeah. I think they have crackling chemistry. I think, yeah. I, I think the scene in his, in the room where, where they're flirting with each other in his bedroom is crackling. And <laughs> I, and as I said to, to Phil, as a child, as a younger man, a younger, a younger and hornier man, I never found Sigourney Weaver attractive. But she's like this now. Now it's, it's this Anne Bancroft thing for me, where you watch Graduate as a, as an adult, and you're like, oh wait, Anne Bancroft is the hot one. I feel that way about Sigourney Weaver now. She is the hottest in this movie. She's right? not. Yeah. No, have you seen her in Heartbreakers? Uh, are, aren't we doing Heartbreakers this year, Phil? Isn't Heartbreakers what? a 99? Is that a 99? It's not, no, it's not 99. It's like 2000. No, it's, I think but it's we, like 90. But we just did a Galaxy Quest where I can respect her attractiveness in that movie. I can respect that she's a she's a she's an attractive woman. But in this movie, uh and I don't know I don't think so in Ghostbusters the first, but there's something about her in this movie. She's she's pretty fucking hot in Alien. Perfect. I mean, she has like yeah, a fucking she, she has yeah. the Linda Hamilton uh 
hundred percent. Yeah, but uh, no, she's. I, I get it now. I get this. Like we were, I my dad was always talking about. You're gonna watch Heartbreakers, and you're gonna come for Jennifer Love Hewitt, yeah. and then you're gonna stay for Sigourney <laughs> Weaver. You're gonna be like, oh fuck, that's different. Uh, are we sure that's uh, not 99, Phil? I, I, it's not. It's really not. Uh, so, for for a little more context, uh, Ghostbusters 2 opened on June 16th, 1989, in first place with 29.4 million dollars, ahead of and listen to this weekend: Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Dead Poets Society, Star Trek V, and See No Evil, Hear No Evil. Uh, Ghostbusters 2 would go on to make 215 million dollars worldwide on a 30 million dollar budget. Also, first of all, against that budget, that's fucking insane. Yeah. Um, also they weren't dodging, people weren't dodging other films on the release dates back then. They were yeah. like, fuck it, let's do it. We're <laughs> they, just they, gonna they, they didn't even know though. This year is, su- this year is, is such a nuclear bomb that they, they didn't even realize movies were capable of this because this happens. And then two weeks later, right? Batman happens. Yep. So this breaks the, yeah. the, the, the first week record. Batman breaks it two weeks later. They just, it, it's, it, it was, it was, it was Jaws every weekend, which must have yeah. been so weird for the industry. I mean, wonderful, I'm sure, but just weird. And it really, this it, part of the reason we're doing this is if 99 was like kind of that indie explosion and, and taking us into like the new millennium, this really took us into like the 90s, the, the, the blockbusterization of everything, the studioification of everything. So I think, uh, I think it's really, really a wild year. Well, well, I think this is also, if you like look back to when – the spec script market was hot for films. It was like slightly before this, but then into the nineties, it was like everybody thought, Oh, you can make a block. You can have 10 blockbusters a year. It's fine. We'll pay $5 million for this fucking script. It's, it's also, I mean, Kenny, to your, to your point, it does feel like it's, I mean, it's the moment when franchises are plausible, when IP, like all of this stuff just, I mean, just that idea of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade opens Memorial Day weekend, it gets two weeks, then Ghostbusters 2 comes out, it gets two weeks, then Batman, like this idea that you're given like a two-week window, I mean, it is is just kind of insane. I, I also think too that like, do you think, and this is a question for both of you guys, that, that this summer is so enormously successful that the quote-unquote shame that might have existed around sequels goes away just because of how colossally successful they are? Or do you think there's still shame involved in it after that? I think there's still shame in that. Um, I think we've talked about this before. There's a couple books called The Best Movies Never Made and The Best Sci-Fi Movies Never Made, and Mm -hmm. they're they're both really, really good. Um, But I remember reading specifically about Total Recall, and how they were like, there's no sequel, man. That is fucking lame. And like Schwarzenegger being like, yeah. no, no, fucking lame. Too lame. So, I mean, I think we're still in it. And I think the thing that's really, the thing that I find so fascinating about having this conversation right now is Marvel Comics went on in the 90s to like go bankrupt and like yeah. fall apart. And like, and you're like, what? How could they not have figured out? the Marvel thing earlier or just any kind of monetization of these properties, which now, as we all know, is you have to have these properties to even move to step two of having a movie idea. Yeah. It's, I'll also say too, you know, so the movie gets 54% on Rotten Tomatoes from critics and 61% from audiences. Uh, Roger Ebert called it a disappointment saying he reviewed Ghostbusters two in a public screening and heard no laughter during the entire film. 
Uh, Gene Sisko called it a poor copy that offered nothing new as though they were filming the first draft of a script, quote unquote. Um, Mike Clark of USA Today uh, was critical of attempts at making the Ghostbusters movie more mature, that said the film felt tired, lacked in surprises, uh, said that uh, it became four Ghostbusters and a baby. Uh, you know, it, it's it, it's just interesting to me that, that at the time, this is sort of the perception of this film. And I think that part of why we love it is because we're looking at it through the prism of 2020 and thinking that this movie would be a breath of fresh air if it was made today. Um, but at the time, I guess maybe rightly they were just like why are we doing this <laughs> well i mean to the to the point about the sequels they they started down o2 i'd say you yes. know if that makes sense like yeah. i it, it was really hard for a sequel to get get good critical notices now it happened back to the future 2 did to some extent uh terminator 2 obviously did but for the most part, like they were done in critics' eyes because they were seen as cash grabs. After now, I think we've had what 13 or 14 years of Marvel films where the quality stayed high against all odds. Yeah. I, and, and a whole generation of critics were kind of weaned on them. A lot of people we know and like, uh, mm-hmm. a lot of people we've had on this podcast, uh, to the point where, you know, John Wick 3 is an art house flick almost for like critics, right? Yeah. Fast and mm-hmm. Furious 8 comes out and all the highbrow critics are like first in line and it gets 85% on Rotten Tomatoes. The, the, the industry has changed completely where now it's almost like, give me more of this stuff. Let's see what it is. But yeah, I think, you know, your total recall point is really interesting one to me, Hunter, because that was the default. You make a great movie and if there wasn't a sequel seeded, you get the fuck out. Yeah. Right. You know, it's the ET model and things like Jaws, Jaws 2, Jaws 3D. Those were running jokes. It was a joke in Back to the Future. Jaws yeah. 17, yeah. Right. Uh, that was like the crass thing to do. So I do think that your point, Phil, about Ghostbusters 2 today feeling like a breath of fresh air. Obviously, they, 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 they wouldn't know what film would become and how kind of cynical we would get, yeah. which is what, what's happened. But. Ghostbusters 2 is, I mean, maybe well, it's a little I, work I, I like, but it just goes and works and rules. Here's a question to you guys. At this point, we're in June of 1989. What is the best sequel to come out up to this point? It's probably Temple of Doom and Last Crusade, right? I mean, if we're being Can honest. Ever? Well, up until this point, in Empire. June of 89, yeah. Well, Empire, Star Empire. 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 Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, but that's that was seen. That's, that, that's what I mean, though. That yeah, was, yeah, yeah. Those are yeah. both like saga y type. Right. You know, like a straight up sequel that's got like a fucking two in the title. There's it's another like, one. That's hard. Obvious two. Uh, Aliens is another obvious example. Yeah. Right, 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 right. So You're right. Like, yeah. And that Godfather, might be the one. Godfather 2 is like, that just feels right. like an extension. Right. Yeah. But, you, I but, think, to your, but to everyone's point, it feels like if you got a two in the title, it's like a fart. Like no one wants that. Yeah. No one wants this this weird stink on on the thing. It's it just weird. Well, well, I mean, it's it's especially with when we were growing up, all the Disney sequels would be straight to video, yeah. which is a separate division, mm-hmm. is a low cost. And I remember, I remember when do uh, you guys remember the movie Planes came out? Sure. Yeah. That was yeah. that was made by the direct to video team. 
Mm-hmm. And then someone at Disney was like, wait, <laughs> all the Cars people are going to go see this. Like, this is going to the fucking theaters. So that's how much it, that's yeah. how much it's flipped. Um, the thing that yeah. I was going to say earlier is uh, when you were mentioning that it's four men and a baby, it shows what the bar is for fatherhood in the 80s because it's like they don't do anything to help this kid at all. There's no fatherly anything. The no. kid's like fucking out a window. Like it's just <laughs> – The kid's a fucking prop. I mean every yeah. time Bill Murray's in a scene with the baby, he's using it like a bit. Yeah. Well, it also it also shows what the bar is for fucking criticism at the time, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, baby. Ooh. How like la- I mean, how lame is that? This is who said that? The USA uh, guy. USA Today. USA Today. I mean, I'll, I'll say this, uh, Hunter. Uh, Kenny and I just recently did an episode on baby geniuses. Speaking of babies. Oh yeah, movies. sure. Uh, I believe that has sequels. Uh, I believe I tried to watch yeah. it before. It's it's an abomination, but uh, it, it does make me. I was watching this, Kenny, and I did think like babies in and of themselves, like three men and a baby, like this idea of like baby as plot device is it's effective. It's effective in this movie. You get a lot of good jokes out of it. It's it it adds a sweetness and a genteel kind of quality to the movie for for what it's worth. Uh, you have that absolutely bonkers fucking scene when the when the I guess the spirit of Peter McNichol shows up it's with awesome. the baby carriage. That's good the shit out of the too. Kid, Yeah, <laughs> takes the kid away and That's just out kid, into yeah. the fucking street. It's crazy, crazy. That's some good like, ghost shit. I love that. great like, ghost shit. That, yeah, that is like this fucking ghost in a fucking. And, and did you hear the little the little on the score? Like they they that that is that is that is drawn from. 50 years of cinematic history. <laughs> you really do it really, really hitting me right in the field. It's great. You know, the, the, baby, the baby device um, cannot work and will not work if you don't have someone killing it in the parental role. And Sigourney Weaver really sells this idea that she cares about the, a baby. Now, as someone, as someone who has a lot of babies, it's hard to get that worked up about your baby, to be honest. If it's like a four-year-old like you really you really bonded with this child yeah 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 yeah. six-month-old baby like i mean it's all potential at that point yes although i do want to say that it should be said hunter that in our baby geniuses episode kenny did posit that more people should have punched the babies in baby geniuses so (laughs) that makes sense hey by more i just mean one there is no no baby got punched this whole movie and the babies are some of the babies are straight up evil so yeah, I think true. I think what's interesting because and this is my wife. For people who don't know, my wife's a, a writer. Also, we were talking about how hard it is in a comedy for there to be like life and death stakes, yeah. and how it like fucks everything up. And you're just like, just I don't know. So I think that this was like a really uh, clever way for it to feel like there's a life and death thing, but it's a baby. So it's not like it's not like a character in the movie is going to die. Because then it's going to get too serious and weird. It is a prop. And it is like, yeah. I mean, it's almost like a MacGuffin. Like, we got to save this fucking baby who yeah. is, it's a boy it had, that could it, be a girl. It doesn't have any it lines. Be, no, it doesn't it have personality. It it's doesn't do anything. Yeah, it's a complete prop. But I think it's I think it's smart in that you get kind of the what you want out of a life and death thing without it really feeling like that. I, I also nice think. Too, sorry, go. Sorry, go. Go ahead. Go. It's a nice little thing. The idea too that that Vigo the Carpathian. We should talk about Vigo the Carpathian. We will. We absolutely will. Yeah, yeah. Is going to 
kind of his spirit is going to take over the vessel Correct. that is this baby. Yeah. yeah. Which seems, yeah, yeah, I don't know. If he could if he could take over spirits, I might take over someone who's already, you know, able to walk and talk and whatnot. <laughs> but um yeah. but it is that's gonna that, be born yeah, again. That is genuinely scary. So yeah. also it's, it's, but yeah. I but there's a but to your point they don't get bogged down in all the minutia yeah. of like how it works and who's the thing and the blah, blah, blah. It's just like mm-hmm. the guy in the painting talks to us and he's going to go into this baby's body. Done. Keep going. You know what? <laughs> keep moving. Yeah. Because, because they know what I think movies a lot of the time, certainly TV doesn't, doesn't understand, which is like people aren't shitheads. Like people get this stuff. This yeah. is not like this is not yeah. high level thinking. We've watched movies for so long that we understand that if you have an evil spirit, he, one of the things evil spirits may do is yep. take over another person's body. Yeah, move on. Yeah, it's it's yeah, it's it's just you know it's logic. It just it's yeah. a it's, yeah, it's, it's a movie logic that we've yeah. This isn't yeah, art. Yeah. You're just bu- you're buying into the thing, and you're and you're just along for the ride. So I want to talk about one other quick thing um, in terms of like from 30,000 feet on this film, which is uh, the slime factor. Um, I I don't know about you guys, but I felt like in the 90s, slime was fucking everywhere. Now, this feels like one of the first groundbreaking slime movies. Now, I don't don't have necessarily all of the knowledge, but like it's 89, so it's pretty early, but like... You have Secret of the Ooze. You had like that Nickelodeon show where they're dumping slime on everyone all the time. I mean, kids were fucking shooting slime at a that gun. That was the Canadian slime show, buddy. You can't do that on television. <laughs> that was the Ridge. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and uh, Alanis Morissette had uh, slime poured on her as a child. Alanis. But I, I mean, I, I just I I kind of yeah, want to say that that the slime in this movie works incredibly well. Um, but it also just feels like, am I the only one that feels like slime was having a moment in like yeah, the, but, in the nineties? But, but hold on. Are you not aware of the slime of the last five years? Slime is a big deal right now. Slime, slime is everything. Slime was okay. So you can make slime with like borax and Elmer's glue and something else. Anyway, Phil places were sold out of Elmer's glue and borax. Like, I mean like really Glendale sold out. Can't get it because yeah. so kids kids still want slime is what you're saying. Kids are ma- the kids were making make- slime. Kids had slime businesses <laughs> where you could where you could like buy from them. I'm my not nieces, even joking. My nieces have a slime it's business. Incredible. See, I've gone to Walgreens and walked out with 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 carts of Elmer's glue. Uh, the borax we've used before, uh, I, I know how to make it. You, I, oh, and, uh, and, and, uh, contact lens solution. Use a lot of contact lens solution in your slime making. Yes. Yeah, slime is, slime is bigger now There's than ever. Phil. There's literally, no I've, I know, I've heard my daughter have conversations and this was a couple years ago cause she's a junior now, but when she was in junior high of like, well, Robbie's slime is like blah, blah, blah. And Lydia's slime is better because it's like da da da. Like it's like artisanal at this point. And now with whole with um now with distance learning and with yeah. limited amounts of of things you could do in science class, slime sure. is a big unit for my kids. Yeah. Slime and ublek. I don't know if you know what ublek. Ublek, yeah, ublek. Ublek. So uh, so slime is slime is bigger and better than ever. But I. Not to get off off topic. I had no idea. Slime in, slime in the eighties was kind of a different thing. Where yeah, it was, it's just 
It was a little more viscous, I would say. Do you remember? Do you remember or, Gak? You could buy the Gak. I remember like Gak. Gak. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Gak, Gak was a big yeah. deal. Yeah, I do. I just feel like this movie does. We talked about this a little bit earlier, but like this slime feels tactile and real. I think yeah. if you had slime today of this magnitude in a film, it would all be fucking CG. Whereas, like when they jump into that that sl- that river of slime, looks fucking awesome it's, it's lit awesome. perfectly it it just it's it's just great um i i mean the, the amount of colors is, is amazing the colors are it's incredible yeah it's it's and you know what's interesting too is the slime kind of feels a little bit like the aliens in the abyss Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When we're under the water and when we see like that kind of, when it's like the, the, the kind of pinky purple version of it down there, it kind of yeah. has a similar vibe to it. Um, the other thing I want to talk about just real quick is Peter McNichol in this movie, who's just unfucking believable in this movie. Apparently, when he read the script, the character's name was just Jason. <laughs> and he was the one who brought up the whole Carpathia thing and calling the character Janos. <laughs> like, he built this whole thing and apparently was inspired by Meryl Streep's accent in Sophie's Choice. <laughs> Which he was in. I know. <laughs> Which I think is <laughs> incredible. I, I, I'll never get over because I knew this guy from this movie. And every time I saw him, so he was an Ally McBeal, you know. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, he, he was he was also in Baby Geniuses, amazing. Mm-hmm. Like, and every time I saw him, I'm like, you can't take this guy seriously. This is <laughs> it's, it's, just, from upper, it's from the Upper West Side. Uh, you just you just want to like do the thing, do the thing that you do. Don't don't do other things. Just, just doing do that thing, one. You, you, yeah. yeah, it was like it, was it must have thing. been like it must have been like uh, like Andy Kaufman fans who were just fans from Taxi. Yeah, do yeah. other shit. And it's like ah, that's how he's always been for me. For so, sure. The, so learning that he was Meryl Streep's love interest, or that he was in a love triangle with Meryl Streep and Kevin Klein. Kevin Klein, yeah, so Holocaust. Choice. Okay. I know. I'm just like Janos. No. <laughs> he got it. No, that that can't be it. He's oh, amazing yeah. in this movie. He's su- he's such a star in this. It's unfucking believable. Every scene he's in, like he just when he's in the scenes with the painting or with Vigo, like 
he's just on another level. He's just doing some unbelievable shit in this movie. And when he's like asking Dana out, you're like, just go out with him, man. It'll be hilarious. Like, <laughs> go on a date with him. I mean, yeah. Oh, it's so yeah. Great. It's 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 really it is it is a tremendous performance that uh, I'm almost sort of glad, Kenny. To your point, that I had seen now rather than because like I think he's great in Ally McBeal. I really love him in Ally McBeal, but I wouldn't have been able to take him seriously. It's weird to watch. I'll I'll say that like when he was on screen, Ally McBeal, I was like, wait a second. <laughs> Who's this guy? Yeah. He was in, in romantic storylines. For some reason, people always still thought yeah. this guy was like, in Baby Jesus, he's married to Kim Cattrall. And he's kind of the outcome of that relationship. I just like, and obviously, you see this guy all the time. He's Peter McNichol. He's a real actor with a real, you know, he's, he's, he's a name. Uh, but yeah, it's never, I've never gotten past it. Uh, is the Upper West Side? So, you know. So, but like this, but this is what I mean when it's like, could we have done this series without Bill Murray and whatever? I mean, nobody was like, oh, they got Peter McNichol? Oh, fuck, that's going to be great. Like, it's just, you know, there's 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 things that you can add that you don't know yep. that they're going to make it so good. Also, Rick Moranis is fucking was, insanely yeah. good at this. I, I honestly, I was I was tweeting yesterday with uh, past and future guest Joanna Robinson because she, she likes this film better than the first one as well, and she thinks the first one's... A, you know, a little predatory. Um, and I guess I can sort of see that, but I, but I think that, um, he's so good in this movie. Uh, I just, I don't know. It's, 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 it's pretty tremendous. But anyway, he is, he's um, amazing. So funny. Uh, so let's, but I, I, I want to say something else because I think there's, I, I think it's interesting that nobody talks about Aykroyd when they talk about these movies. And I'm going to pause it. It's because Dan Aykroyd's not very funny and I don't really like him very much. And I, 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 he feels like to me, like he's just their friend and he might be their hardest working friend. And he might be the friend who, you know, is willing to call the manager or willing to call the producer, willing to actually sit down and type out, you know, the, the, the script from the outline that they've all put together. He, he never, ever does it for me. How do you guys feel about Akron? I, I, I mean, I can't disagree with you, but I feel like. He 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 inhabits a space which I don't know. I don't even know who else I would say this about. But I feel like he ends up being the straight man who doesn't know that he's the straight man. Yeah, that's and like that's a great thinks, way of putting it. And thinks yeah. he's being funny, but is really just sort of kind of like the glue and helping move everything forward. Yeah, I, you know, it's funny you bring him up, Kenny, because I just recently rewatched Sneakers for the first time in a while. Um, which great movie holds up great. Um, Dan Aykroyd, that might be my favorite Dan Aykroyd performance because I don't think he's acting. <laughs> he's playing a guy who's obsessed with conspiracy theories, and you're just like, hmm, is this right. just you, Dan? Like, I, so is this you, Dan? <laughs> is this you? <laughs> um, I, I, I think that um, to your to sort of everything you guys are saying, I think he kind of struggles with this duality of like, I think he's legitimately a little bit of a a crazy person, and also isn't funny enough to be the funny guy. So there's this push and pull that seems to exist in him that I just don't find particularly interesting. But he did write these movies. So like, he has a negativity that doesn't allow him to be funny a lot of times. I think a good example is like The Great Outdoors, where sure. he comes in and he's just, he's clearly trying to be funny, but you're like, I just don't like this dude. <laughs> 
as you should not like the dude. And then John Candy just fucking shines because he's such a locks. And could I think that's really good good <laughs> reference because con- contrast that with planes, trains, and automobiles, where Steve mm-hmm. Martin is doing a similar thing, but Steve Martin taps into this thing where you feel like, oh, this is also, this is also supposed to, supposed to be our point of view. Like we're supposed to empathize with this guy's plight. And I do understand how this could be the fucking pits being with Candy in this situation. Uh, and I think Steve Martin does that from time to time where he does play a, a kind of mis- miserable misanthrope, but he never strikes me the way Aykroyd does, which uh, I think Aykroyd is Ackroyd seems like he's that guy in real life. Is it my reading too yep. much into no, it? No, I see. I, I totally agree with that. I, I think. I, yeah, go. Sorry, go ahead. I think from the same era that movie Big Trouble is is Ackroyd. Nothing but trouble. Nothing but trouble. That's what it is. Sorry, nothing yep. but trouble. That's like Ackroyd. Too much unleashed. Yeah. <laughs> like, like I got, I got it, I got it. I'm funny. I'm gonna do it. I'm, you know what I mean? And then I'm not just movie, funny. I'm gonna play multiple roles in nothing. And that movie is like I used to watch a nightmare. Speaking, I used to watch that movie a ton. Also, just because I could never fully figure it out. <laughs> yeah, I sure. mean that's a movie that I could not explain to you. I could probably watch it right now and not be able to explain to you when it was done. But you'd know every scene and when it was coming. Yes, yes. Tupac's in it. The other uh, other big Ackroyd movie, I mean, there's the Blues Brothers, which, you know, that's that's for other people. But um, Trading Places is the other one that I think holds a, you know, a warm place in a lot of people's hearts, but not for Ackroyd for me. I'm never rooting for him, even though okay, Eddie I also just say, a crazy one. I, I, I'm never down with him in that movie. Can I also just say that that the scenes and this this proves um, another sort of unbelievable comedic talent in this film that doesn't get enough love is Harold Ramis. Yeah, he's um, great. He's so fucking good in these movies, and most of his scenes are playing off of Dan Aykroyd, and he's killing it. And it makes Dan Aykroyd look like the weaker comedian in these scenes because like Harold and Ramis the weaker scientist and, and the weaker scientist. scientist. Now, the, 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 Cause that's, the, that's the nether that all right, the, the one thing I fucking love about this movie, these both of these movies is you take Ramis, you take Aykroyd and you take Murray, three guys who have played cynical before who have played skeptical, sarcastic Murray, certainly. And none of them doubt the existence of ghosts. Like that's not what's going on here. There isn't anybody. There's anybody straight manning people out of the fun of this movie. And even Winston comes along. And Winston's just kind of like, if you tell me they're ghosts, they're ghosts. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, all right. I mean, the Boston makes me feel good. I guess. Yeah. But, uh, but I, I would really hate that if one of these three characters was undercutting it. But what that does is. You have Egon as the hard science guy. You have Murray as a scientist, but who's kind of having fun with it. What role is Ackroyd feeling except for the guy who like gets the gas in the fucking ghost mobile or the guy who remembers to power up the fucking, you know, proton packs. He just seems like a guy who he does seem like the guy who's, who's more excited about all of this. He's a little bit of like the kid in a candy. I I hear you. I'm not really disagreeing with you, but like, that's kind of ghosts that they they (laughs) live for this shit. And I'm that, and I think that's great about this movie. They live for this shit. But I think that in a way, 
and maybe I'm just over reading into everything again, but it seems like Ackroyd's the one who kind of comes off as having it all to having it all, holding it all together. You know what I mean? He's kind of got, you've got Egon, which who's a little bit too into the science of it. Venkman is, you know, a wild card who you can't rely on necessarily. Winston is just sort of brought in as an afterthought. <laughs> I'm not sure his exact role, but it feels like the stance is like the guy who is holding it together in the actual businessman of the group. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I also, he, I just want to take last, a second. Yeah, he's the last holdout. I mean, he, you know, he he owns the Razor Colt shop. Like, I get that he's a true believer. He's uh, like he's like George Harrison. He's like laying down on. You know, un, uh, yeah. thanklessly laying down the, the the rhythm of the bass guitar, and, and Winston's uh, clearly the Ringo of this of this. Yes, team. yes. Yeah. yeah, I I just want to say for a second, the names in this movie: Peter Venkman, Egon Spengler, and Raymond Stans are phenomenal names. And They're Winston, fantastic. And Winston Zeddemore. Yeah, these are great names. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, so I just want to let's just we'll, we'll start at the beginning. We'll walk through this pretty quickly. But like, I love the opening. I like the ooze, the baby stroller stuff. All has kind of a, awesome. a Rosemary's Baby kind of vibe to it a little bit. Um, uh, I do think the movie starts off a little slow. Like, it takes about forty minutes to get to that first like ghost busting scene. I still like it, but like, I think they could have gone a little bigger with the baby carriage. Like, I think that that could have been like a set piecey thing, and instead, it just kind of feels like a what's kind of going on scene. I don't know if you guys agree or not. But. I love it. Okay, fine. Yeah, I thought it was I, set piece. fun for me. I, I I love it. I think I like the lo-fi of it. Um, it it's just, like a, yeah. a primal fear that sort of everyone yeah, gets. Yeah. Uh, I think we can all agree one of the best theme songs ever. When it fucking kicks in, you're just like... It's the best. It's yeah. the fucking best. Second best song in this movie, but still very good. <laughs> <laughs> The uh, then we get song is so good. It it's never, so good. Never left my brain. It's so good. Uh, we get a Jason Reitman cameo pretty early in this movie at the children's birthday party. Um, yeah. But uh, basically, uh, so Raymond owns an occult bookstore and works a side job alongside Wilson Zetamore as an unpopular children's entertainers, the two of them. Spengler is working at a laboratory expending, experimenting with human emotions. I guess like divorced couples being put in rooms and just That studying. was fantastic. That was fantastic. <laughs> it was great. It was so yeah. detailed and you're like, what's happening? Yeah. It's like, okay. It's, well, all right. So it's – it's a, you set up so much. It's, I, that's why I like fundamentally disagree with you, Phil. Like it, okay. you set up so much in, this fir- in the first 40 minutes. One, they do the thing that I love, which is these guys – as they say, save the city from a, you know, 40 foot marshmallow man that they conjured up. Gozer. Gozer. Yeah. Um, They, they got sued by every department agency. They got sued out of business and now the whole city forgot them, which I love. (laughs) What happens to the guys from Armageddon now? Like they they have their little run on the today show and the tonight show. And then they go back to their lives. What happens to all these people? Like, Like, you know, and in real life, we know what happens to, like, Sully. Sully, like, does nothing and occasionally, like, endorses Biden. So whatever it is, like, these, you have these heroes for a moment and they go away. So I like, I love seeing the, 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 the children's party performance where they're all yelling for He-Man to just show how far they've fallen. I love, 
I love Ray hanging on to this dream with the occult shop. And then I love Peter Venkman taking this little amount of celebrity you get by saving the city and putting it into a public access show. It is so sad. He's also so funny in it. When he says, this so is funny. Peter Bankman signing off saying, and he just holds his finger to his head and doesn't actually do anything. <laughs> and he's It's so good. He is so <laughs> good. Um, I would watch it's that show. See, yeah. I, I, think, I think to your point, Phil, one of the reasons why I really like this movie is because I like, I really like TV shows and I feel like TV shows more than movies. And this really felt like I hear that. you have the first movie then you have like a 40 minute, like, where are they now? Then the rest of the movie is just the the monster of the week, you know, what they're doing. And that's why when you get to the end of it, you feel like we should be doing this every week. I mean, they should just be solving shit every week. This is amazing. I told, I, I, I really do agree. And I don't, I don't mean to suggest that I didn't like the first 40 minutes of the film because I did. And I do think that you need it for everything you guys are talking about, not just for setup, but just, you know, in terms of... You know the the last the last sort of hour of this movie are pretty balls to the walls. Like it really kind of doesn't stop for that last hour. So you do need the forty minutes of sort of like reacclimating yourself to this universe, falling back in love with these characters, seeing where they've landed in the in the last five years. I think all that all that stuff's great. The only person that I question is why Dano uh, is working at an art museum cleaning paintings. I'm not I'm not totally sure how a cellist gets from uh, from that to that, but it's what it is. Um, it's it's a little bit of a stretch, but it's fine. A renaissance uh, woman. I'm sorry. She's a renaissance woman. Sure. Uh, so she turns to the Ghostbusters after Oscar, her baby's <laughs> baby stroller, uh, is possessed and rolls into a busy intersection. Um, at the museum, a portrait of Vigo the Carpathian, a brutal 16th century tired and powerful magician, comes to life and enslaves Dana's boss, Janos Foa. Uh, yeah, and basically there's this moment when he's like physically coming out of the painting. Like it it again, it looks so fucking good. That looks like great. I just ugh, I just can't get over so, how good it is. Have um, you guys read yeah, uh have you guys read the, the it was a A V Club article or maybe a Deadspin article about the actor who played Vigo the Carpathian? No. No, I did not find so, that. Vigo the Carpathians, the actor. It, it it has some real evocative title, like the like the miserable life and horrible death of Vigo the Carpathian. Uh, but basically, this I mean, not not to hijack the podcast for it, but all right. So this guy is in a couple of the movies you see. He was in Die Hard. He was one of the bad guys. Yes, he was also in Digstown, and he played. Uh, you love Digstown. That's one of your favorites. You love Digstown. One of the great movies ever made. He plays. Yeah. Digs. He plays Digs. It's his town. It's his, it, it, it's his the titular Digs. The titular Digs. He has no lines. He sits in a wheelchair, and at the end of the movie, he stands up. It's actually amazing. Uh, and he has that Vigo the Carpathian face. But Vigo, he was a he was a, a legitimate heavyweight contending boxer in Germany, uh, who was the son of like a brutal father. And what the story is about, and he, he gives us like he lost uh, he lost a fight. That he shouldn't have lost. He was very beautiful. He was a really beautiful young man. And then he has this older boxer face that, that we see now that's been beating the shit. He gave this legendary interview where for five minutes after he lost a fight, he just wouldn't answer any questions. He just stared the interviewer down because he kept asking why he lost. And apparently this is an interview that, that German men like revere. Uh, Vico the Carpathian. I'm sorry. His name is Wil- Wilhelm von something or another. 
which he adapted as a professional wrestler to be as scary as possible. And the story is about how he visits his half-sister uh, as he's near his death and tells her, uh, by the way, uh, I raped your mother and I think I'm your father. So uh, he, yeah, horrible guy. He's nuts. Vigo the Carpathian. Um, <laughs> you know, read, read, up, read up on him if you can. It's a real kind of... It really took a turn. It's, yeah. a real fast, it's a real fascinating article, the kind of article that sends you down like five different wiki holes. Right. Go ahead. Uh, so I, I really love the, I also the construction workers about, bit. I also found something out about Oscar that uh, that's horrible. Uh, the children who played Oscar, played by, I believe they were the uh, the, the, the Dusseldorf twins. Something uh, like that. One of the Dusseldorf twins took his old life when he was 28. Dude. So, uh, keep going. Cursed movie. That's what yeah. I bring to this podcast. Incest, rape, and suicide. All right, all right, all right. Uh, so there's a whole construction <laughs> workers thing, which I appreciated because it felt unscripted to me. It just felt like they were just riffing. Am I it, wrong? Did it not feel that way to you guys? When they kept changed, like when he kept changing his tactics, it was just so funny. It was just so funny. Yeah, <laughs> it's great. Uh, so Vigo orders Janos to bring him a child to possess, allowing him to escape the confines of the painting and live again to conquer the world. Uh, because of his infatuation with Dana, uh, Janos chooses Oscar as the baby to sacrifice to Vigo. Uh, can we talk for a second about, so, so Janos goes to Dana's apartment, just like kind of just shows up at her door. That's like, Hey, like, sure. Uh, and, and the hallway is just lit red like like hell like the the corridor to hell and he's just trying to kind of ask her out and she kind of blows him off and then he walks down the hallway and his eyes just turn into giant fucking lights and he's just scanning the fucking hallway it's an incredible image i couldn't tell you why it's happening but it's incredible i think it's just like oh this dude there's something wrong with him like just to be clear <laughs> Just to be clear. clear. Uh, So then uh, the Ghostbusters excavate uh, excavate the intersection where Oscar's stroller stopped. They go down to this sort of pneumatic, the the beach pneumatic transit system. We talked about the River of Slime being fucking dope. Raymond is attacked by the slime, actually breaks a pipe, causing a city blackout. Um, They're arrested. They're taken to court for damage uh, for investigating the supernatural. Rick Moranis is their lawyer, and he's fucking incredible. I want just a show of Lewis as a lawyer. Oh, it's so bad. He's such a bad lawyer. Oh, good. Lewis was an accountant. Is he a tax? He is. He is an accountant. He says that. They they fudge their way through it. Yeah, but he's the scene where he's relaying what Bill Murray says. Well, it's is unbelievable. He's, he's there is no one as good as Rick Moranis, maybe ever. He might be the best actor. I mean, when the judge asks him why he's defending them, and he says, "One time I turned into a dog, and they helped me. <laughs> These guys helped me. <laughs> These guys helped me." <laughs> Yeah, that's what happened. It's just the fucking best. It's the best. <laughs> and then as you just said, Kenny, Lewis translating Peter as he mumbles at the stand is just oh. like... Oh, that's I mean, the best. It's so good. It is. It's incredible. Oh, um, So then basically they present the slime as evidence and it responds to the... Physical, it responds physically to the judge's angry tirade, and then these two ghosts of these 
brothers that were sentenced to the electric chair pop Scolari out. Scolari brothers. Scolari brothers. And it's just yeah. – uh, can I just say also I love that the slime is affected by people's emotions. Like again, it's yeah. good writing that like it's not some bullshit thing. Like it's actually how you feel. I don't know. It's just great. Uh, the set piece is fantastic. It's also the Dory Egon bit's great. It also it's simple, and it also speaks to my you know my my larger theory on ghosts, which is oh you, yeah I have I have a unified theory on ghosts. Uh, I don't think ghosts are going to come back to haunt. <laughs> I I, th- I I never I never really I never really understood the idea that ghosts are coming back to haunt. I always thought if they're uh-huh. coming back, they're probably coming back to observe or maybe have some kind of closure. But they're uh-huh. not going to murder us. So if you have some kind of slime, it's neutral. The slime is neutral. New York is what makes it evil. I like yes. this. Yeah. Can I just can I just say, Kenny, that one of the things, and there's so many things that I like about you, obviously, but the logic that you are attributing to this, like it's just these are just hard facts here. Why would well, the ghost come back to do anything is, evil? That that's my unified theory, but. The the hard facts of this movie is that the it is neutral. The slime is neutral. The yeah. movie doesn't. The movie only makes sense if if it's neutral because it loves dancing to Jackie Wilson. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think if Kenny, if you get a chance, I'm a huge uh, unsolved mysteries uh, person. As am I. Um, have you seen season two of the new ones? No, I haven't, and I can't wait. Um, there, so there's one about the, uh, the tsunami in J- Japan and it talks about ghosts and it, I think you'll, I think you'll really enjoy it. Thank you. I appreciate Great. that. I, as soon as, um, as, soon as so I the ghosts that. capture the ghostbusters, the ghostbusters capture the ghosts in exchange for a dismissal of their charges. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, and obviously they, they get rid of the ban on them from, you know, busting ghosts, which is you know, it's great. Which is great because they just again, we just gloss through it. It's it makes sense. <laughs> it's a good trade. There's no technicalities of like how does this actually work? <laughs> oh fuck. And then we get just a great getting back into action montage of just like them oh, just like they're okay. just back to busting ghost and it's just all fucking great again. Yeah. So all right, so here's a question. Yes. This works perfectly. We all agree. Yes. Would you guys have the guts to write something this, let's say, at surface level today? You know, like with the, what you were just talking about, Hunter, I, I do feel like I, if I was writing something, I would have that little logic police voice in my head saying, well, didn't he just read, didn't he just gavel it in? And wouldn't he have to go to something like, yeah, yeah. You have the guts to do something like this. You would have the guts to do it. Uh, no, I wouldn't. I would. I would get bogged down in that too. And I think that the best things that I've written, I've skipped past that bogged down stage because I think, like, even just talking about, it, I'm like, well, they would they have to call the governor? They'd have to get the prosecutor to drop the thing. Could it just be a pardon? Because you know that like nothing works like this. <laughs> so, but it's but that's what allows you to move forward in the story. Well, this That's feels to me like movies. I agree. Well, but I I would argue that the issue is ne- isn't necessarily writers having the guts. It's that the fucking noting process from the executives is where you get into the problem. Where 100%. for whatever fucking reason, and I don't know why this has happened, 
And it's been this slow sort of dirge towards this of just a complete lack of faith in audiences, understanding things and putting things together themselves. This desperate fear they have that the audience member might be lost for a fraction of a second where they might not put two and two together. Um, and, and just the, the, the dire consequences of such a thing happening. And it's, it's depressing. And I guess what I was, what I, what I was illustrating was the way, you know, this, this thing that I agree with you has come from studios down through networks, down through, you know, executive ranks and it's gotten to me somehow. Now I, when I say, would you have the guts to, it's not because I would worry about the audience. It's because I would worry about the execs. It's like, do you want to get the note or do you just want to like try to fix it before you get the note? Yeah, that's a, and that is a problem. And when you were saying that, Hunter, the best things you've written, don't do that. My question for you was going to be, that's probably stuff that, that those are probably episodes of shows that are on the air where you felt a certain amount of, uh, a certain amount of agency over yeah. what, what you put in there is going to get on versus, you know, things yeah. writing on spec or, or pilots that you know are going to have to go through a bunch of, you know, rounds of bullshit. And, and yep. when you say that, I mean, I think probably the best, like, produced thing that I've ever written is uh, the Mac and Dennis move to the suburbs, mm-hmm. Always Sunny episode, which obviously they can do pretty much whatever they want. But that's an episode where Mac and Dennis move to the suburbs and the other three characters are really barely in it. And when we... When we started breaking that episode, before we'd even pitched it to to the guys, it was like, well, can we do this episode? Because it's not really about all five of them and how exactly does it work. But that's an episode that's great, and those guys are just so fucking amazing. But, yeah, normally you would go, well, that's a shitty episode because how do you – why isn't Danny DeVito in it more? Why isn't Charlie in it more? Why isn't Dee in it more? So, yeah, I mean, for sure. Yeah, it's it's – you know, it's funny. I, and I imagine we'll be having this conversation um, a few more times, Kenny, as we continue to work through these 89 films. But like, this is just, again, a symptom of, of, of a simpler time. We texted about this a little bit, Kenny, too, of just like that, not just the stuff you could get away with, but the faith people had in audiences to just roll with the punches and to like, let's not, let's not worry too much about this stuff. You know, you overthink it and you just, you, you, I don't know, you lose something in the transition. I, th- I think that there's a version of if this movie hadn't been made and they were like, let's make Ghostbusters 2. I think nowadays there would be potentially a version of this movie that is everyone's split up. Ghostbusters have fallen apart. They're trying to get back together. This courtroom thing happens. And then the next hour of the movie is like the minutia of how to get them back on the horse and back. You know what I mean? And then it's like, you're not even doing another adventure until the next movie because the minutia of all this has become the entire thing, which is insane. And there is actually, there's a decent, what's funny is there, there is a decent amount of that in the first one, mm-hmm. uh, which I, I like to be honest. Mm-hmm. Like I, I love that in the first one. Cause they make all that stuff work really well. And maybe that, yeah is part of why, like, I love the scene in the mayor's office. Um, yeah. I love them pleading their cases in, in that way. And I think that's great. But I think back to your, you know, back to the point about what we do and what we can get away with it and, and, and all, all that stuff. I, I, I do think this is a big problem with the industry right now. And I think this is the reason that everything that's not, you know, from a top, top level showrunner, mm-hmm 
uh, or conversely flies completely under the radar and they just put out there like they don't notice like uh, like uh, I may destroy you um, or you know my, my old go-to is always girls these things that just kind of got out with weirdly no notes just kind of exist in this place where you just have you're just hand-holding the audience the whole way and I think it's charming when they do things like the, the scene we're talking about where the judge switches his verdict in the moment. That's charming to me. I love that. The other thing that I would say, the other thing I would say, Hunter, to your point, if like, say we just made Ghostbusters 2, my fear is that, you know, you'd have a, a, a fucking room put together to do a deep dive into the cinematic universe and mythology of this thing. What I love about these movies is how fucking breezy they are. They tell you just enough as, you know, you see literally that little blurb about Vigo. You're like, I get what this guy's deal is. And then it's just like going a fucking ride. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's very Spielbergian in that way, which is Spielberg doesn't really get mired in that whole mythology bullshit of really any of the sort of movies that he's a part of. He tells you enough information to be able to get through it. Same with Zemeckis as well. It, 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 it harkens back to a different style of, of movie making where, you know, and it, it, we talked about this, I think, Kenny, with Back to the Future a little bit too. You know, j- just enough information to get you to the next scene. Just Back enough information to allow you to enjoy the ride. Back to well, the future, the quintessential one of these. And I, and I think like the, um, uh, what was I going to say? This is going to be a really interesting part of the podcast. Um, <laughs> I'm sure it's, I'm sure it was great. It was great. Um, <laughs> I think well, like, I think, uh, I think what yeah. I was going to say is I think that like, this this film operates on a very binary level in a good way of like these are the good guys these are the bad guys there's not this fucking like investigation of like Janos and like where who is he and like yep. Yep. F- should we feel but be- do we need to save him yep. can we can we extricate the demon from him and do the thing it's just like no man those are the fucking bad guys that's why like Vigo is so good because it's not like there's not like a Oh, I feel bad for this dude. He's trapped in a painting or whatever. It's just like, he's the bad guy. These are the good guys. Let's go. Well, there's also the perfect example of this is at the end of the film when things get, they get a, a, a little bit, I don't want to say murky, but like there's a lot of shit going on in like the last five minutes where you're just like, I'm not sure that all of this needs to happen. But at one point, fucking Vigo goes back in the painting and then he jumps out of the painting again and he jumps into Ray and they have to, they have to sort of exercise him out of Ray. And they do it by just, firing their fucking proton things at him and he just and then he just hops and out of goo. him it's like and the, goo. and the goo but you you understand my point which is that in an in a movie today someone would have to explain why what they did would exercise him out of like there would just be a lot more sort of bullshit piping or just expositional right. dialogue you know I, I i say this just from you know, we had to do it on Sleepy Hollow all the time where it's like the studio yeah. would always be like, why is this happening? Why is this happening? Explain this. Explain this. It's like, but you're taking the fucking fun out of it when you explain this much shit. Well, I'll say another thing. All right. So the stuff we're talking about, mythology and process and all of these things, if you don't explain it, I promise you the audience will fill in the gaps in a yeah. way that works for them. Right in a way, and that is more fun for an audience, I think, than you being like, "No, it's mitochondrions." That's the kind of stuff that people are like, "Who like like? Why do we need that?" And if you spend all your time on that bullshit, 
Like mytho- I'm telling you, because Game of Thrones, there's so much stuff that I don't know about Game of Thrones that I don't care about. That doesn't matter. But I have my own theories and I was able to work through the show, right? Um, if you spend your time on that, you're taking away from are the relationships between the characters and the development of this char- of the characters and the things that I, I know I, and things that actually matter. And it's funny because what's really frustrating about television these days is for the last – I've been doing this now a while, right? I've been doing this like, oh, like 12 years or longer. Execs are always saying it's the characters, it's the characters, it's the characters. Not when you're pitching. Not when you're pitching. When you're pitching, it's the twists. When you're pitching, it's the reveals. When you're pitching, it's the what happens in the back half of the season. It's the what happens. And it's very hard to explain to an executive or to explain to anyone to be like, look, I know these characters so fucking down cold that when I put them in these situations, they will do things that will that that will illuminate who they are. Right. I think the audience will like it's the, 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 the plot and the mythos and the, the process. That stuff is not that fucking hard. It's hard is making these people feel like people. Well, so I've so I think Phil knows this. I'm working on this project with with another one of my friends that's like a, a murder mystery. And it's just it's part of it is about when we're pitching it, you know, the twists and the turns like you're talking about. But it's like. It's so hard to go, and then you find out this person's the murderer without the reaction just being, "Well, yeah, that makes sense." I mean, because it, it, it's just, it's very difficult, and I think that that is what you're saying versus going, "These are the kind of this is the world we're building and the characters and everything, and just trust us, it's all going to work out and make sense." Yeah, it's <clears throat> yeah. I just I think that across the industry, in in so many different ways, uh, trust has been lost. You know, there's oh, wait, just I, yeah. a lot of that being a lot of it's a problem. And not to not to blow smoke, but I think Always Sunny is the kind of show that should be studied because Always Sunny is never about the title. You know, the, the, right. they, you always put the title out there, which is, you know, it's simple to clear in a sentence. It could be anything. It yeah. could be D makes an apple pie. Yeah. And you would be in because you know that these people are going to do it in a way you've never seen it before. It's never about the plot. It's ne- like if you have fun, interesting characters of interesting relationships with each other and make decisions that are either uh, in character or not in character, which is another thing that like I don't think exactly understand that sometimes making the choice out of character is an interesting character move. Yeah. But if you have interesting characters and interesting dynamics between them, making an apple pie could and will be an interesting Mac. I mean, Mac it. Mac and Dennis moved to the suburbs. That's that's that that it means nothing. If it was two characters I don't care about from a show I don't care about, moved to the suburbs, the boring show it means nothing. But Mac and right. Dennis moved yes. to the suburbs. That's a that's a thrilling premise for me. Right, because you're like, what did that? What does that look like? Which is why we ended up doing it. Yeah. The yeah. other thing that um, when I first <laughs> the first time I worked uh, seasons nine, ten, and eleven. So nine was my first season, and I remember. I just distinctly remember, I think it was McElhaney. One of them was like, let's do another guns episode. And it's like, we, we just did a guns episode like two years before. Or whatever, And it was just like, yeah, but guns are still a problem. So let's just call it like, okay, it's called something like guns Two still hot or something. <laughs> but it's like, they like, they fully, and they've done this multiple times. They did it with the gasoline. They did the gasoline thing more than once. Anyway, it's like, 
they they will take the like cardinal rule is like you already did an episode about guns. How are you doing another episode about guns? It's like because there's a bunch of other shit to talk about about guns. Yeah, right. So I think that yeah, and I think that it's so interesting about characters and doing things that are out of character. And I've just worked on shows before where someone will be like, yeah, but that character would never do that. And it's like, well, well what does that fucking mean? I mean, anyone will do anything. It drives me nuts. It's insane. And so then I, I think, I think I literally said in the room, can you give me a list of everything this character can do? And then, so I'll, I'll be able to help you with stories more. It the only does thing feel drives, like. The only thing drives me crazier than that. And this is the, and it, 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 I'll lose my mind even like going this direction is when someone explains that a character can do anything because that character is crazy. And it's like, no, that is not that. That is, first of all, no, they're not crazy. And I'm, this isn't some PC shit. Like, no, they're not crazy. And like, that's not a reason for a character to do something. They're wild. Call they do anything. No, no. Give me a reason in the context of the show why they've done this. But yeah, any character can do anything. I've done so many things in my life that make no sense to people. Like doing this podcast. So um, <laughs> Bill Murray and the Ghostbusters uh, go to see uh, Sigourney Weaver. Um, and Bill Murray asks Janos what part of town he's from. And what does he say, Kenny? The Upper the West Side. There you go. Um, That's not what he says. He doesn't say. That's why he, he doesn't say what part of town are you from. He says, where are you from? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I need to say like Belgrade or something. And he says, the Upper West Side, it's the perfect joke. That, that, there's a better joke in that scene, though, which, which is which why is? I don't. What do you say? Which is? Uh, wait, but wait. Who said that there were no laughs in the theater? Because the joke Ebert. where the joke where Egon says, I'd like to do a gynecological examination on her and and Vankman immediately says who wouldn't who wouldn't is the funniest that is like a that is a fucking I don't know a 10 star joke I mean that is a joke that is like an incredible and then I had to, we had to explain it to my 13 year old son who agreed it was a great joke <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure once you explained it it became funnier too right yeah 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 um it, it's it's that uh is it police squad the joke, uh, who are you and how did you get in here? I'm a locksmith and a, I'm a locksmith. Like, <laughs> it's, up there. it's up there with that joke. Um, I, as I'm sure you saw on Instagram, Hunter, I saw Top Secret for the first time oh, last week. Amazing. I mean, that movie is unbelievable. Um, so the scene, the the scene, Wait, the scene that was yeah. shot backwards? It's unbelievable. It's like so fucking weird. You like it's so weird because the first time you see it, you're like, I don't even understand what's happening. What is this? This is so weird. Nick Rivers. Yeah, I was I was watching it. I mean, it's it's 2020, so I was watching it on a date via Zoom with this girl who Ooh, it's hello. one of her one of her favorite movies. Yeah, and said that this movie would give me some sort of insight into her uh, into her brain. Were her words? That's um, kind of nice. Yeah. So we watched cool. it and and then that backwards scene happens and I literally was just like what's happening? Like yes. I don't understand what's going on. But sure. Um and I also want to say she sounds the, cool. Yeah, she's cool. Um the underwater fight sequence yeah, underwater fight is sequence. a movie making marvel. <laughs> like it is just like what? I mean the fact that that movie is not a bigger deal. I mean, Val Kilmer is incredible. 
He's incredible. He's, incre- I mean, he's but so I, good in it. I just I watched that underwater saloon bar fight. Yeah. With my jaw on the floor, thinking, "How did they even shoot this? How did they even make this?" I remember seeing that movie the first time on TV and knowing nothing about it. You know, just a movie I stumbled into. Yeah. And not knowing it was a spoof, right? So having these things happen over the course, and I knew who Val Kilmer was at that point. Val Kilmer was Leslie, not Leslie Nielsen, right? So you don't immediately assume this guy is in a spoof movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I remember that underwater scene coming on, just being like, ah, what's happening? It's, a, it's, it's, a it's wonderful. It's unbelievable. Um, so basically, uh, Egon, Raymond, Winston, they go into the tunnels. There's a ghost train, which is fucking rad. Um, they, they fall into the river of slime. They crawl out of the river of slime. Um, and they all start fighting with each other. And they realize that the slime is connected to emotions. Um, but then we also get uh, Lewis and Janine are babysitting. And Janine is, uh, is hitting on Lewis pretty hard. And he's eventually sort of puts two and two together. Um, and then Dana shows up and he's apologetic. He's just really sorry that he was making out with Janine. He was just like, you know, one thing led to another and I'm really sorry. <laughs> She's just like, it's fantastic. It's, I love it, Annie it's Potts too. Annie Potts is oh, like, oh, so I mean, great. she's incredible. She's oh. so good. Uh, the Ghostbusters tell the mayor their suspicions of what's going on and they throw them into a psychiatric hospital. Like, this is just like, an like, oh yeah, let's just, they're in straitjackets. Kurt Fuller, 10 out of 10. Like, just 10 out of 10 of these two movies. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Fantastic. Oh, Particularly yeah. in the last one. I mean, he's, he's the best. One of my favorite parts of Ghostbusters, the original. But I, uh, he did, he was in an episode of My Name is Earl, I did, and it was a, Oh, that's awesome. Real fucking pleasure because I love him. I love him from uh, Wayne's World also. Me too. Oh, and I love the the end of this movie. I, I never really uh, – I, I never put it together. But the end of this movie with Ray and Johan or whatever his name is. Um, Janos. Janos are both covered in slime, the happy slime. And I love you. I love you. That's so much like the end of um, Wayne's World. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Well, yeah. yeah. Uh, so then we have this crazy scene where that that spirit of Giannis just comes up to the house with a spirit stroller and uh, flies away with the with Oscar the baby, um, which is amazing. Uh, it's New Year's Eve and the slime is rising in the streets. Chaos is just uh, it's basically swallowing up the the entire museum. Again, this shit looks unbelievable. It looks um, great. All the ghosts are being released into the streets as well. The Titanic shows up for reasons unexplained and everyone just starts like walking out of the Titanic. Well, there's also the great moment where they set up at the beginning that that dude wrote the book yeah. and the end of the world's going to be on New Year's. Yeah. They had the great joke of like, well, are you cutting it a little close? I mean, you're going to be hurting your sales and blah, blah, blah. Like, <laughs> it's so funny. And then it's like paying off. It's Kevin like Dunn. Way. That's another great actor. Like, yeah. they, yes, they, yes. they really stack the deck. Yep. Uh, so then they realize they need a positive symbol to rally the citizens and weaken the slime. And that's when Ray just thinks that the Statue of Liberty is the way to go about that. They pilot it through the streets with a Nintendo joystick. I had that Nintendo joystick. Uh, oh, it's amazing. Huh? I believe um, it was the NES Max. Yeah, well, it was. Sure. The- yeah, because I, I, my I, I remember my friend had it and I was he would kick the shit out of me in like most fighting games because he had that cooler it controller. Was, that controller was so big when you Huge. think about the size of of what is essentially two buttons on a joystick. It's hilarious. Yeah. The buttons were like I mean gigantic. Yeah, 
But I remember, I, I remember in the in the eighties, Nintendo was not like accepted in the mainstream. I remember, see, I remember feeling very seen when I when they used that joystick, right? Like we really like like us Nintendo nerds made it. So that's so funny. It's yeah. a big deal. I mean, it's no yeah. joke. Um. So then, um. Okay, then, uh, where were we? I'm sorry, my apologies, I got lost. Uh, we're at the museum, museum is covered in slime, blah, blah, blah. They neutralize, they repel through the ceiling, they neutralize Janos with the positive slime. Um, Vigo takes on a physical form, blah, blah, blah. Then the crowd outside starts singing Old Land Sign, and their positivity weakens Vigo. He's forced to return to the painting, but then he jumps out of the painting again, and he possesses Raymond. The bummer of this climax, I would say, is that Lewis is kind of an afterthought. He's sort of, he's like outside, and he's sort of like, he gets all suited up to kind of do nothing, which is a bit of a bummer. Um, but it is what it is. Portrait of Vigo is replaced by the Ghostbusters all surrounding Oscar. Not sure who painted that painting. Not sure how that painting manifested. Oh. But- just is what a, it is. A weird, a weird thing at the end. Yeah, I, I, I do think they missed an opportunity, Phil, with uh, Lewis not being inside there and ultimately being the one to save the day. It just, it's you know. But doesn't it feel like it's like it's yeah. like tipping toward the next movie and like this is maybe yeah. he's going to get in there? Like it's just a bummer to me because it, it, it feel it feels like a thread where you're like. If there's going to be a third movie, maybe Lewis can get more involved and he's going to say, hey, guys, I was I was ready this last time. But then we don't get anything. So then we're like, well, you should have fucking done it. Yeah, they, they could have done Lewis a Ghostbusters story, I think. But oh then you God. also get Giannis saying, buy my dripping with goo. <laughs> <laughs> he had so many good lines. But so funny. Then you get a credits montage, and those don't really happen anymore. Where like you actually see like story beats that are happening over music and credits. I, I could just see money just being spent, and I loved it. And my wife being like, "This is just they they shot all this. Like, what, <laughs> what the fuck is this? It's like, yeah, man, this was like this was like a, a million, a couple million dollars just for this like." The credits, it's, awesome. it's bizarre. I, I just, I, I'm, I I'm amazed. They love the audience. Yeah, they, they do something like that in the first one too. I really, I have such affinity for like the the end of the first movie. There's something so New York triumphant about the end of that movie um, that they do. Yeah, there's a little of that here too, but uh, there's, I don't know, there, there's a there's a spirit and an energy to the first movie that makes me really miss New York, and that's a weird thing about this movie. Uh, that doesn't. I don't feel that same I miss New York thing. It doesn't feel quite as um, it doesn't feel quite as, this is going to sound kind of weird, but as set in New York as the first one. Well, the the first movie, and maybe I'm wrong, but the first movie I think feels more like they're battling for New York and yeah. then yeah. this one is they're sort of battling for a baby. It's like a little bit more reduced the the the, the goal. I feel the same. Yeah. Well, I think it's it, it yeah, I, I I agree with you. It's 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 trying to have its cake and eat it too a little bit. Like the slime is certainly a citywide problem that they need to defeat. But because the Stay Puff Man was like a thing that they like a monster that was like 
it just felt different. Whereas like the big thing is them this time because they're in the statue of like they're it's it's yeah. I hear what you're saying. I think kind of, yeah. I think that there was something. I mean, I just think that the first one's really incredible. I think there's something to the idea of winning over New York that they don't. They just don't have to do this time. You yeah. know, New York, New York has already accepted that there are ghosts, and when there are ghosts, you're going to call the Ghostbusters. You call the Ghostbusters. What the fuck's wrong with so, that? That's what you do. So it doesn't yeah. have that same kind of. It doesn't have that same kind of. You know, entrepreneurial. Uh, we can do it together. You know, let's go. Let's go. Build, put a team together. Thing, but uh, it's but not like, as it's. The, it's not as scrappy. Oh, yeah, you know the what elements. I mean? The elements are there. Yeah. Really, a wonderful movie. It's a great watch. It's a great movie. Uh, so Hunter, we're gonna rate this movie. Oh man, um, we're, we still do zero to ninety nine because. <sighs> You know, it is what it is. Um, zero to ninety nine from what you thought of it in eighty nine. Uh, then before the podcast, after the podcast, I will go first, so you have a little bit of time to think on your rating. Um, in 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 eighty nine, I was nine. I saw this movie. I thought it was fine. I, I didn't. I didn't love it. Um, I, I'm just not sure that it totally clicked with me. And I'm not even sure I had seen the first Ghostbusters first. I'm just not sure. But the Ghostbusters movies, if I'm being completely honest, were not really staples of my childhood in the same way that like your Indiana Jones was, your Batmans, your what have you. Um, but I probably would have given it like a 70 in 89. Um, but now, I mean, it's fucking great. I'd give it probably an 89 now. Like, I, I just think it's, I, I think more than anything, the sort of the over, the thing that hit me the most outside of how funny Peter McNichol and, and Rick Moranis and the cast is, ultimately was just, the filmmaking component of it, the production of it, how good it looked, how great it like it just I was turned to Mel at one point. And I just hit pause. and was like, look at how sharp this thing looks like it was just a street scene. And like they just did a beautiful job making this movie. Um, so I was just kind of floored by all the effects and all that stuff. So I, I'd give it an 89 now. But uh, what about you, Kenny? Um, I think that I want to be very clear about this. Okay. I've always had just a little bit of shame about loving this movie. I've always okay. felt like, and Hunter, I don't know if you agree, as a fellow Ghostbusters 2 stand, that, you know, Ghostbusters 1, in unimpeachable, everybody and their mothers loves that movie. And Ghostbusters 2 was kind of a blight on the franchise. And when even when I, re- I remember seeing the, pic- the, the, the poster with the two out and the slime behind him and the green slime and feeling just a little bit of like shame that that, that is something that I love. Okay. Yeah, I relate to that. So I, I, I straight up, you know, going into th- seeing it in, in, in 89 as a seven-year-old, uh, possibly my favorite movie I ever saw up to that date, I'm going to give it a 90, 95. I think that's where I was. Um, absolutely loved it. I watched this movie. I gave it an 88. Uh, still totally fucking love it. But something about your tweets last night, Phil, and seeing just a ton of people saying that movie's great, that movie's great. And frankly, you saying that movie's great because I didn't know where you were going to come down. Uh, and I I knew going into that Hunter was into that movie, but also like having Hunter's like backing and and this whole thing like – the shame has been lifted from me. I no longer have shame about this movie. 
And as someone who's very weak willed and insecure and needs to needs to, to needs to go with the pack so often. Yeah. Uh, I think I think there's a little self loathing in that eighty eight. And I'm gonna bump it up to a ninety five where it was when I was a where I was when I was a seven year old child. And I really think I I, uh, I think that's where it is for me. I truly, truly love this movie. Um, I think so when Phil, you know, Phil will often send me and my wife just a list of movies be like, like, do you like any of these? Do you hate any of these? About these for two hours? Yeah. Do you want to talk about these? How much do you want to avoid your children? Which is a high level, a high level of avoidance. Um, I just like reflexively said, well, um, two, two is better than one. And Phil was like, that's insane. And so I was kind of like, well, you know, I, I kind of went on and I didn't go immediately watch it. I just kind of like thought about it and thought like, yeah, I think that this is an unpopular opinion. And I think people will not agree with me. And I thought I thought for sure I was going to have to fight Phil. And I thought. Kenny is going to like snob out on this a little bit too. And I was like, just really. And I was like, now I'm going to like do this whole like thing where I have to fight against these people. And then nobody's going to agree with me. And so I don't, I I fucking hate doing these ratings. I mean, this movie has like been a hundred for me for a long time (laughs) because I just, I just, I just don't know. I don't know what else you can ask out of it. Like, are there things that don't work? Sure. But there's a lot of stuff that works really well, and it looks incredible. And I think there are some great jokes and just some great comedy moments. And I think, you know, I just get I get really nervous when Kenny talks about Ackroyd and not liking Ackroyd because I think that he just brings something, and I don't know what it is. Do you remember when uh, when Dennis Rodman used to play for the Bulls and then he played for the Spurs? And there was always a dude on the team named Jack Haley, who mm-hmm. was like his friend. And and Jack yeah, Haley, Jack Haley on every team because he when like you down when you sign Dennis Rodman, who's a fucking crazy person, you yeah. need to sign Jack Haley because Jack Haley will be in charge of Dennis Rodman. Yeah. And I'm not saying it's the same thing, but I'm saying I think you need Dan Aykroyd within the. I don't. That's part of the magic. Oh, for exactly. sure. I don't. I don't mean to suggest that. Dennis no, I'm just. I'm just saying. I'm. I love this movie so much that I would be so afraid to remove any piece of it oh, and to go. I, let's I fix this thing. Let's fix that thing. I, I love the flaws of it. Mm-hmm. I, um, I thought, and it, Bill Murray's reaction that you were talking about earlier totally makes sense because I thought oh, these guys very graciously allowed Peter McNichol to be crazy funny. And uh, and uh, obviously, um, what's his name, Rick Moranis, to be hilarious, and even gave a lot of screen time to Sigourney Weaver. And I was like, oh, that's really cool because I think that shows maturity on a comedian's part to allow other people to be funny. I was probably too harsh, too hard on Aykroyd. No, no, no. I'm just saying. No, what I'm saying is, I love it so much that I would not want to remove any piece of it. You're you're right. It's like it always it always kind of drives me nuts. When you have a team, this usually happens with teams that just barely lose, right? A team that loses a game seven. Yeah. And they're like, we got to blow it up. What? We, you don't have to blow it up. Like, yeah. 
couple calls go your way, this team is like is is like to your point. You're right. This team is as good as it gets. Just like, run it back. Team. Yeah, run it back. Yeah. You don't have to sign Kevin Durant. You know, yeah. run it back. So run it I, back. I, I feel so, you. So I think I think it was like a hundred when I first saw it because I love it. I just fucking love it. And then I think Phil got in my head, and I was like, "Oh man, it's probably like a seventy-five or like a seventy or like maybe it's really bad." Because I mean, I do like I do like some bad movies. But then I'm coming. Out, I'm I'm gonna go. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna call it a hundred because I fucking love the movie. I just love it. <laughs> it's great. It's a great movie. It I mean, I, I it's it's. I, I went into this as I, as I said to you guys, not really having much expectations for it, and I was I was really pleasantly surprised. I I, I w- I'll also say too, like the you know the tweets that you're talking about, Kenny, where a lot of people were like, "Yeah, I like it more than the first one." Like a lot of people saying that, and I don't think there was any shame in that, but it did feel like I'm in the minority, but I'm going to say this, and I think that more than anything, it's just a very very good sequel. And that in and of itself is a hard thing to do. You know, I, I think that we can all safely say that, like, there's a handful of, like, pure sequels that are even within striking distance of the originals. And this movie gets there. And yeah, I, I think that's I think that's it never felt like it was one of those sequels that people held up as a not even a great, great sequel, just a great movie, just something that, you know, is, is that, that you can be proud of liking. You could be proud of yeah. liking Temple of Doom. You could be proud of liking Terminator 2. It always felt like there was a certain amount of shame yep. if I ever, even though I think like there are moments that are unimpeachable in this movie. I I, I think that the, the birthday party thing is unimpeachable. I think Peter McNichols' character and performance is unimpeachable. Um, but I think it really holds together. And I think it's really an excellent film. I think like this is just to give you a little bit of a 2020 comparison. I think that like, there is a weird shame about it. And I think there is like people come out of the woodwork and be like, no, no, no. I like that. This is in a weird way. This is how I felt when Biden won all the primaries. I knew what you were going to say, I knew what you were going to say. Or you're like, it's Whoa. the same thing. It's the same, it's the thing. same thing. Phil and I went through this together because Phil and I were like, you know, we're like, we like Warren, like everybody else, right? She's the smartest. She answers the question, but she ha- she has a plan for everything. And we were like, fuck Biden. Like, he's old, he's stupid. Then Biden would even, But even if you're not Warren, you're Sanders. That's what I'm saying. Warren. You know, Sanders, but I'm just saying it's like the third place person. You're like, oh, fuck. Everybody voted for that guy. <laughs> oh, yo, okay. Why? I remember having this discussion because California came in a weird time. California yeah. was like the it was like Pretty the early yeah. primary where you were kind of like, oh, Biden is probably gonna win this, or at least, or at least it felt like Biden is back, like as as someone you could vote for and not waste your vote. Yeah, and I remember Phil and I having this conversation. We're like, mm. we kind of, I kind of love Biden. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of all rushing back to me. Like I kind of remember how much I love the Joe and the Barry and Joe show. <laughs> You're totally right. You're totally right. because it's like because in a very similar way, Biden gives you like exactly what you want. Yeah, and Ghostbusters too gives you exactly yeah. what you want. I mean, they do the, they do the, they do the thing again. The big things walking through the city. Fucking great! Keep doing that. Oh, the, the Joe so Biden of sequels. If, if, if Obama is the is the Ghostbusters, Joe Biden yeah. is the Ghostbusters too. Yes, yes. yes. That's a, that's a, that's 
Yeah, yeah it's going to be great. Yeah. Now let's just hope oh, Kamala got the Ghostbusters 3. Oh, God. Oh, um, yeah. That's another, that's, another, that's, uh, that's another podcast. That's another Patreon podcast. Uh, Hunter, thank yeah, you so much for being here. Good, that was a good comparison. Yeah. That, yeah. Was, that, was, that was really great. strong. That was um, fun. Yeah. Uh, we can't wait to have you back for something else in the future. But mm-hmm. uh, this was this was fucking awesome. And thank you so much for, for joining us behind the paywall. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I didn't have to wear clothes, so that was good. Just podcast like it. Podcast like it's 1989. Baby fish mouth. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.